Chapter 6 is um, primarily the argument Paul is making. I've called it positional truth. How does God see us? How does the Father see us? And the first 14 verses, the primary theme is we are dead to sin. And that is because we identify with Christ's death, burial, resurrection. And all that we talked about last week is powerful language that is important for our faith. We need to see ourselves the way God sees us. And that is we are dead to sin. Now, I want to talk about uh, some of that because in chapter 7, there's another issue he brings up. But as I mentioned last week, and I'll mention it again, chapter 6 begins the transition from Paul's discussion about justification by faith and sanctification. Justification is that event where we put our faith in Christ. We are therefore declared righteous by the Father and so on. Sanctification is that process now that we are justified, that process by which the Father conforms us to the image of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. I just gave a definition of each one of those. And so he's beginning that transition. So for us to truly be able to live the kind of life God wants us to live, we must see ourselves as first dead to sin. Now, the second part of chapter 6, which is 15 through 23, Paul says, and this is, at first it sounds a little odd, but it's how he wants to present it. We are slaves to Jesus. We are bond servants to Christ. We now serve Christ. So, as we talked last week, he had mentioned that the importance of we're now in the new economy, the new covenant era, no longer under law, but under grace, the end of verse 14. What then is the question? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Now, there's a word for that, and it's a theological word, and I'll mention it, and then you'll forget it the rest of your life, but it's called antinomian, where it means you can do whatever you want. That's not what he's saying. We know that's true because he says by no means, the strongest way that you can say no in the Greek language, agonoita, no. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So Paul brings up the issue of slavery. Now, at, at first, that's a, little, that's a little uncomfortable because there are a lot of negative connotations to slavery. There are not a lot of negative aspects to slavery. That was true in the ancient world. It's true in the modern world. But he wants to make this very clear. And here's his theme. Before you put your faith in Christ, you were slave to sin. You were in bondage to sin. Christ broke that bondage and bought you out of the marketplace of sin. The Greek word for that, which we'll see that coming up a little bit later, is we're redeemed. We are bought. We're, we're paid for. And we now belong to Christ. The price that Jesus paid was his blood, shed blood on the cross. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's where he's going with this. But thanks be to God, I'm, I'm in the next verse, verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the new to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, let's 
talk a little bit about that. First of all, we thanks be to God, a change has been made. You're no longer slaves to sin. Who were slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. Let's stop there for a minute. Obedient from the heart. Man, that's new covenant language. That's the language of Jeremiah 31. That's the language of Ezekiel 36. Because as you know, the heart, is it's a metaphor in the Bible. It doesn't mean that organ that pumps our blood through our bodies. Heart means that center of who we are. It's the center of our will, in a sense. It's the center of, 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 of our decision-making. And so he says, obedient from the heart. Now, if you go to Jeremiah 31, you go to Ezekiel 36, is where the promise of the new covenant is made. The Lord is transform, promises to transform us from the inside out, transform our heart, transform our will, transform our mind. So he just focuses on the heart. To the, to the standard of teaching, the Greek, I read from the ESV translation, the Greek word for standard, which is how the ESV translates, is tupai. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but that's an important New Testament word because this is focusing on what standard of teaching, what tupas of teaching, the teaching of God's moral law, which he's put on our heart. That's the promise in the New Covenant. That's the promise of Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. God will put his law on our heart. He'll, he'll, he'll enable us to internalize it so that we now desire to obey it. We are now committed to it. That's the language Paul uses at the end of verse 17. So the language he's using in verse 17 is the language of the new covenant. And that, remember, is that, that, that covenant relationship that God has with his children by faith in his son that results from the cross. The shed blood of Jesus Christ inaugurates the new covenant. Jesus states that very clearly at the Lord's table when he inaugurates that in the upper room. This bread is uh, my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. That's remarkably important language. And often when we, we have communion at church, our pastors don't stress that enough. This is the new covenant in my blood. We need to really zero in on that. When we partake of the Lord's table and we drink of the cup, that's new covenant activity. We are participating now in identifying with this new covenant, which is inaugurated by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul operationally, in verse 17, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. This is new covenant language. We now have the capacity. We now have the power. And we now have the will to obey God's moral law. I don't. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that's something to be excited about. This is a transformation God has done in us through His Son's death, burial, and resurrection, and through His Spirit who now dwells us. Do you have that down? You don't have that down. Not yet. Go ahead. The point. I mean, I, I got the general idea, but. Uh, Point being, uh, we now have the capacity to obey. That's right. Without God's, without the Holy Spirit, we really don't. Um, basically, yes, that's right. So, so I have a, I have a question I've been holding for a couple of minutes here. Um, you talk about the heart being the center of your decision. All right. 
and like your wills. Um, I, I got into a, a little discussion with friends about the difference point between spirit, soul, and, and, and body. Body's pretty clear. That's something we have on earth. We are our soul. So which which is, I mean, between um, spirit and soul, which centers, where's our heart? Where's our will? And is there another way to frame that? Well, without getting into, if you don't want, without getting into the discussion of whether soul and spirit are two separate entities that define a human being, because in the New Testament they're used interchangeably. So they are used interchangeably. There are that gets under the. But I like to, I like to go back to something Jesus said when he said, when he was asked, "What's the greatest commandment?" He said, "You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength." Okay, heart is the center of our will. Soul is the center of our emotions. Mind is the center of our thoughts and so on, and our, our, our bodies. Heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's our body. So it's a holistic, total love for God, okay? And so as the Apostle Paul is talking about right here, with the new covenant and with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who is the sign of the new covenant, we now have the capacity to holistically love God with our heart, Soul, mind, and strength. <laughs> Holistic love and commitment to God. And, 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 and so spirit and soul then are, are used interchangeably. Yeah, they are used interchangeably in the New Testament. The, the, the contention was your soul's where the, your emotions are, your spirit's really where you are. You know, uh, yeah. I, again, I, I'm trying to avoid a discussion because the debate in theology is: Are we dichotomous or trichotomous? I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but that's a debate in theology. And so, it, it, essentially, this is this is accurate. To be a human being means you have a material identity and an immaterial identity. Material identity is your body, but that's not all. When I look at you, I see your body, but I do not see the immaterial part of you. God does. It's your soul, and Paul makes this comment in, in 2 Corinthians 5.8, the absence from the body is to be present with the Lord. So our bodies, and so to speak, goes into the ground, our soul goes to be with the Lord. And then at the resurrection, those two are rejoined. When, when we are, receive our new resurrected body, those two are joined together in a perfect glorified state of a soul-body unit which lives with God forever. Right, and that's, now, that, that's never to... That's correct. That's correct. That's the promise of eternal life of God. And the most uh, marvelous exposition of all that is, is 1 Corinthians 15, which is the longest chapter in Paul's uh, writings, because that's where he defends the literal, bodily, physical resurrection of the believer. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to not get into whether we're trichotomous or dichotomous. Yeah, I, I don't want that to be any. All right, is everybody else with me? Everybody online with me? All right. Yep. Verse, eight, verse 18. Now, again, kicking in, following what he just said, reading from the heart to the standard of teaching. And having been set free from sin, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, 1 through 14, we're dead to see. We're set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
Now, there again, that, that's, that's odd. It, it's, it's unusual. But think of what he's saying, slaves to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. What does he mean? I'm, got, I'm using an illustration from something you're real familiar with, slavery. Now, that's not as familiar to us. It's a familiar to us historically. But when Paul wrote this, slavery was pervasive in the Greco-Roman world. Some historians estimate 60% of the population of the Roman Empire are slaves. Whether that's, it's somewhere around there. We, we, they didn't take major census that we have records of, so we don't know exactly. But it, he's saying that it's a very common, natural, oh yeah, I understand what you're talking about, Paul. For just as you once presented yourself, your members rather, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that's before you put your faith in Christ. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. There's a word that he's going to develop a lot more in chapter 7 and a lot more in chapter 8, word sanctification. So he's, he's, again, he's using an example out of the ancient world, slavery. You once were in bondage to sin, now you're in bondage to Jesus and are pursuing his righteousness. Oh, okay. So I'm not only dead to sin, I'm now a slave to Jesus. So I'm switching metaphors here, but that makes sense. I'm a slave to Jesus, which means now I'm on a path of righteousness, a path of sanctification. And that's a big difference from where we used to be. Now, what he's going to start talking about as he develops this into chapter 7 is that path of sanctification is not an easy path. It's a struggle between the old Adam and the new Christ, between the old nature and the new nature, between the flesh and the spirit. And that's why the struggle with sin once we become a Christian, in one sense, is even more intense because before we came to Christ, we didn't have a particular struggle with sin. It so dominated us. Now, we don't want to sin, but we keep sinning. And that's what Paul's going to use. As in, we'll get to that. I doubt we'll get to it today, but definitely next week, where that autobiographical statement which we commented. I do what I don't want to do. I can't seem to be able to do what I want to do. Woe is me. And so when we see someone who say, unlike the Romans who said he was saved many times, yeah, I got him. That they have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, their life may not reflect what our position is, our lifestyle is, but nevertheless. They are in the process of being sanctified right. as they understand this word and God's will through his spirit right. to live their life. So we, I guess we should encourage them and not judge them. That's right. That's exactly right. Because we're all, we're all on the same journey. We're all headed in the same direction. Nobody's made it. Anybody that says I've made it, is, well, I'm going to use a strong word, is a liar. And that, that is a statement of pride. That's a statement of arrogance. We're all in that. And that's why, and this, I'm switching to hold the subject, but that's why in the New Testament the church is so important. Because the church 
His fellow believers in the process of sanctification gathering to mutually encourage and help one another. Whether in that building or throughout the week, that's the church. Church is the organic body of Jesus. We're in this together. And that's why, I mean, I've been in church ministry most since I got straightened out, Lord, anyway. But it's, it, it, church, church ministry is really hard. Because I, to be honest, I don't like people. I mean, in a sense, because it's so hard to be with people. I don't, I don't mean, you know, watching a film with them or going to a ball game. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about when you really get down to the things of life with them, their lives are a mess, just like everybody in one sense. And so that's why you see those, those fruit of the Spirit, like Galatians 5, 22, 28, of joy, peace, patience, etc. to be patient with one Instead of being judgmental, let me help you. Let me encourage you. The Hebrew says, do not neglect the gathering together of the saints. Don't neglect that. Because that's where there's mutual love, mutual encouragement. We're, 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 we're meeting together. And with that goes other issues that are part of, it goes a little bit beyond what we're discussing, but where there's mutual accountability. Uh, when I was in leadership, every year I went with my with my leadership team. We went over a series of questions because to be a leader in a ministry, you're to be above reproach. I want to make sure everybody's above reproach. What skeletons in your closet could damage us as a ministry? And this is what many ministries don't do that because also there's mutual accountability. And isn't the pastor one of the lowliest positions in the church from time to time? It can be. It can be very much so, and you know the the expectation is often that the pastor's some superhuman, and the pastor is not. He's just like you. It's just he has another assignment from God. His assignment is to be a pastor, but your assignment is whatever it is. He just has a different assignment. He's no different than you. There are not two levels of spirituality. My pastor and missionaries I contribute to, and then everybody else. If that's your view, you have a wrong view. That's not the view God has. So can can I get back? Is everybody with me? Everybody online with me? Yes. All right. So you have this, this marvelous argument that Paul's making that we were once in bondage to sin, now we're in bondage to Christ. We're slaves to righteousness. We're on the path of sanctification. Now, in, in verses 20 through 20, um, uh, really to the end of the chapter, he, he makes a, an argument that takes us to, in a sense, the next level. Because the choices you're making in this area relate to your destiny. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But that fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. Okay, now he just summarized what he's been saying. Before you put your faith in Christ, you were slaves to sin, you didn't care about righteousness, and the fruit of that life of sin you're not ashamed of that, because that was the path to death. First two words of verse 22, but now. That's what you used to be, 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Paul has just summarized the three dimensions of salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification. We are now free from sin, slaves to God, and the fruit that we bear, a nice way to think about the fruit is Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, there's nine quality traits, traits that I mentioned earlier. Leads to sanctification. This, this is the goal. This is the goal of sanctification. I don't usually quote from Aristotle, but I'll do it here. Aristotle once said in his Nicomachean Ethics, if you don't know what the target is, you'll never hit the target. Aristotle says, I'm going to define the ethical target for life. And he wraps it all around a key word for him, which was Yodimea, ethics, virtue. The goal for you and me is a nine quality traits of the fruit of the Spirit. The target God has for us, that's the target. That, that's where we're headed, folks. If you want to know the goal of sanctification, there it is. To be a person of perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace. Are we there yet? Nope. But we're on our way. And every one of us, I'd like to sit down with you. We talk for a half hour, an hour. And I talk, well, some of the things that have happened in your life since you trusted Christ. Let's talk about that. Do you see progress? And if we're, if we're honest, we're not, you know, we're not boasting here. We're just, this is what God, his glory has done in my life. And he says the goal of this, the end of this, the telos of this is eternal life. That's where we're headed. We began the journey when we put our faith in Christ. We're in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, and that's why you think of that as fruit of the Spirit. The end, the telos of all this is eternal life, eternity. We receive our, uh, our, our, our blessed, glorified, resurrected bodies, and we'll live with God forever, walking in fellowship with him in a soul-body unit. This is an odd way to put it, but that's the best way to say it. Forever. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that's an exciting thing. Because the Bible keeps reiterating this again and again and again and again. And then he adds in verse 23, it's a very famous verse. This is a verse many, many people memorize. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The choice you make in life determines your destiny. Because the wages of sin is death. Now, isn't it fascinating that Paul chooses to use the word wages? Now, a, a number of you are retired, so you're not drawing salary anymore. But when you drew a salary, that was wages. You did work, and in exchange for that work, you earned wages. That was the expectation, that was the agreement, that was the understanding. So Paul is saying, the wages of sin is what you deserve, death. You deserve that. No one is going to ever stand before God at great white throne judgment and say, you're being unfair, you're being unjust, I don't deserve this. God is saying, oh, really, okay. I'll present the evidence. The wages of sin is death. But notice he switches 
the metaphor. But the free gift of God, if it's a free gift, did you earn it? Did you deserve it? Did you merit it? No. A wage you deserve. A free gift you don't. But that free gift is eternal life. Our destiny, if we put our faith in Christ, is a free gift. We didn't earn it, deserve it, merit it, but it's a free gift. It's eternity with him. And so if, if you want a whole summary of chapter 6, 15 through 23, key in on the word wage and key in on the word free gift. Say that again. Uh, I don't remember if I can say what I just uh, If you want a summary of 6, 15 through 23, verse, 20, verse 23 is a good summary. The wage of sin is death. We're in bondage to sin, and the consequence of that is death. We earned it. We deserve it. But the free gift is eternal life. And as I've said many times, you, know, you put a pen on the table. God's done it all. It's everything, everything's done. All you've got to do is pick that free gift up. It's yours. By faith. So it's a marvelous contrast. We deserve death because of sin. But God gives us a free gift. Through his finished work of his son, all we have to do is pick up the gift. And the destiny of that gift is not only we're dead to sin and we're, we've broken the bonds to sin, but the destiny of that is eternal life with him because of what Jesus did for us. When it says every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Can you find as far as the substance of what well, I think you're quoting from Philippians 2, where, where Paul is talking about the work of Jesus and because of his death, and resurrection, obedience to the cross and all that, uh, the Father exalts him. And there's coming a day when every knee will bow in heaven and earth. And that everyone, in, in the Greek word, it's pantos, it's, it, it's, it includes absolutely everyone. All the angels, all human beings, past, present, future, all will bow before Jesus. What's that mean? Everyone will recognize who he is, the sovereign Lord of the universe. But some will bow out of love and adoration. Some will bow out of fear because they now have understood that everything they believed, everything they followed was wrong. Jesus is the Lord. <clears throat> And all the fallen angels, if Revelation 12, 4 is understood correctly, one-third of the angels do it Satan in rebellion. There's coming a day when they will bow before Jesus. And in that confession, they have sealed officially their judgment, which is already Yeah, and that, that, that has nothing to do with their eternal destiny. It's meaning when Christ establishes his kingdom, everyone will bow before him. There will, no, there will no longer be a debate. I wonder who Jesus is. Is he just a great teacher, a great man, or is he truly the son of God, savior of the world, etc.? That, that debate will end. 
All right. Isn't that great? Now, I'd love, for, I'd just love for you to do a thought paper on chapter six. <laughs> Divide into two parts. Here's the question. Six, one through 15. What's your new identity? What's, what's the question again? What's your new identity? And then 615 through 13. To whom are you in bondage? And why does it make a difference? I hang it up on one concept. Wages of sin is death. But um, some people will explain if you don't accept Christ, then you will end up in hell forever. Does that equate to death? Is that what he means? Yes, I mean, death, uh, the, the scriptures, Revelation, other places, speak of that as the second death. First death is your body and soul are separated from, from that, at the end of your physical life. The second death is an eternal, is the eternal separation from God. So it's not a termination, it is an introduction. Yes, yes. Human beings in terms of eternity, will spend their destiny is one of two places. There aren't three, there aren't four, there's one or only two. In, 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 in the new heaven and new earth, an eternal fellowship with God or eternal separation from God in a place called the lake of fire. That's what the Revelation calls the lake of fire. I mean, that's a, but I always, I always stress this. God does not send a human being to hell. They chose that. Right. That's what he just said. The wages of sin is death. Right. This is what you've chosen. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, has a marvelous chapter on this, where he shows, I think quite clearly, that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. Yeah. Yeah. Because God has continually revealed himself to every human being that's ever taken a breath. Creation, conscience, moral law, Jesus. Every one of those has content to respond to. But the hardness of the human heart, wages of sin, they reject all those. And so eternity is just a trajectory of what you've chosen during life. God didn't send you to hell. You chose hell. That's what you chose. And your physical life ends. Would you expect God to say, it's all right. Doesn't matter how you lived. Welcome then that means God is not a God of perfect righteousness and holiness. But the Bible says he is. So because he's perfect, righteous, and holy God, his justice demands if you violate that, the wages of sin is death. Physical death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. That's very unpopular to talk like that today, but that's never, unfortunately, the way it is. Now, if I can start chapter seven in the 20 minutes, we'll never get this done. Uh, I actually but, have a question. Oh, sure. Go ahead. So as we're, as we're moving from slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness, right? right. And I'm right. assuming that um, in the slaves to righteousness, this is the sanctification process. We are become, we are becoming or we have become and are expressing being a doulos. Um, that's right. And so which one is it? Is it do we do we do we make the decision to become a doulos, have our ear pierced, and 
are moving down a sanctification path or um, is are we are we releasing our will to his will and becoming um, progressively slaves uh, to righteousness? Well, I, it's 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 both. I don't mean to pun on that, but it's both. Uh, because positionally, this is justification, 6, 1 through 14. Mm-hmm. Positionally, you are holy and righteous. Right. The righteousness of God, an alien righteousness, not yours, it's Christ's righteousness, right. has been applied to your life. Imputed. You are righteous in God's eyes. Mm-hmm. But now you are being conformed to the image of Christ, which is that progressive process that's called sanctification. And so every day you wake up, Russ, you have to decide, Am I going to be a slave to Jesus Christ and to his righteousness? Positionally, I am righteous, but I have to choose. And this is what Paul is going to get into in the next chapter, chapter 7. Right. How difficult that is for us. Because our old habits and old patterns of sin before we trusted Christ are still there. So now what God is doing is he's beginning to break all that down in our life. So every day I have to choose to be a doulos to Christ in righteousness. Positionally, I am, but every day, and this is why I said, I wrote this on the board last week, the indicative should lead to the imperative. Mm-hmm. If you were, I don't know if you were in yeah. class or whatever, yeah. but yeah. The indicative, this, is, this, is the, this is that mood in, 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 the, in the Greek, in, 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 in grammar, the mood of a verb, that's the declaration of who you are. The imperative mood is, this now is what you should do. So because of who we are, we now should practice who we are. I should be living out the positional righteousness that I have practically every single day of my life. But every day you wake up, you have to choose to be a doulos to Christ. You are a doulos to Christ positionally, but every day you must choose that. The indicative should lead to the imperative. And that's why I said this last week. I believe this with all my heart. That's why I'm so emphatic in this area of teaching. If every Christian really believed this, and every Christian believed this and lived this, we'd see a revival break out in the United States church. Because this is, this is what's different between you, me, and the rest of the world that rebels against Christ. It's serious business to be a doulos to Jesus, a slave to Jesus. But every day you got to choose that. So this is a matter of uh, of surrender through faith, and the, it is. Is the so is it just? It's like the righteous will live by faith, right? But mm-hmm. no man. But but then at the same time, no man will boast, right? There's a there's a triangulation here, and I don't mean to pick at this, but I get excited every time I see these apparent contradictions because there's always a greater truth buried under them. Yeah. To, and it, it it is just that emphasizing the adjective apparent contradiction. Exactly. It is not a contradiction. Yep. All right. I'm moving to chapter 7. <laughs> chapter 6 establishes that we are dead to sin and we serve a new master. We're a slave of Jesus. Chapter 7 details we're dead to the law. But the struggle continues. Chapter 6, we're dead to sin and a slave to a new master. Chapter 7, the first half is, we're dead to the law. But the struggle continues. And it's the struggle with sin. 
Chapter 7 is about now we're hitting into the heart. Chapter 6 introduces it. Now we're getting into the heart of sanctification. What does this mean to us practically? So, do, uh, let me start with verse, uh, verse 1 of, of chapter 7. And uh, I hope I can get through these six verses. I think we can. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Who would that be? Jews. The, the Jews. The Jewish people. The chosen people. And Paul's one of them. So he's going to switch now where he's been broadly talking about every, uh, talking to everyone who's put their faith in Christ in chapter 6. Now he said, I, I want to talk for these few verses here about those who know the law. The Jews. I mean, a, a Greco-Roman person living in Athens, they didn't know the law. A person living in Rome, they didn't know the law. <laughs> it, it's doubtful they ever cracked the scroll containing the Ten Commandments. So he said, yeah, no, no, Jews. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Well, that's almost like, duh. Of course. So does that make sense? I mean, it's a very simple question. Those of you who are Jews, you would agree with me, wouldn't you, Jews? You Jews, that the law is binding on you as long as you live. Okay, got it. Yes, I agree, Paul. Now, what he does is he makes an analogy here, and this is how do we follow this analogy? Because it it gets to the main point he wants to make for the Jewish person some of whom had seen Jesus as a Messiah, some of whom had not yet seen Jesus as a Messiah, is saying, listen, I want to use the analogy of marriage. Now think of that. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Now that would apply to both a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person. Everybody's going to understand this. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's alive. But her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Okay. Paul, I understand that analogy. Death severs an obligation to the law. Right? He uses an illustration of marriage. Here's a woman married to a man. As long as that man, her husband, is alive, she's bound to the law of the covenant that she took when she married him. Now, if he dies, is she bound to that covenant? No, she's free from that covenant. Now, if she decides to live with another man, still married this man, she's committed adultery. So she's violating that law. Okay, that's a simple analogy. What does he mean by that? Why does he draw that analogy? Why is he bringing this up? Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Ah, now that takes you back to 6, 1 through 14. What is our position in terms of sin? We're dead to sin. Right? So he says... 
You've not only died to sin, you've died to the law. Because you belong to whom? To Jesus, who's raised you from the dead by your dead to sin. I mean, it's all he's so if you follow the analogy of marriage and you make stretch that analogy now to the relationship with Christ, I'm now dead to the law. As a as a woman who's married to a man and the man dies, she's freed from the law. You are now identified with Christ in his death. You're freed from the law. A new reunion, a new relationship has been formed. Now look at verse 4, a crucial verse, or verse 5, excuse me. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit for death, to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, let's think a little bit about this. And I want to I give you kind of an overview here. And, and I'm, I'm going to use some language that's even apart from these verses we just read. But it's extremely important that you understand what he's saying. When we put our faith in Christ, we not only are dead to sin, we're dead to the law. The law no longer defines the character of sin. Jesus defines our character. We go from being enslaved in bondage to sin, enslaved in bondage bondage now to Jesus. And it's his character that is now our goal, our purpose, our telos, our end. A Jew looks at righteousness and says it's in the law. You and I look at righteousness and say, It's in Jesus. You follow me? That's what he's talking about. A new union. We are now conformed to him. We belong to the one who's raised from the dead in that we, so that we may bear his fruit. That's part of 6114, which you write in your thought paper. Our new identity is we're dead, buried, resurrected with Christ. We're alive to Christ. And his righteousness becomes our righteousness. So practically speaking, the, the law no longer defines righteousness for me. Jesus defines righteousness for me. His character. And where's a good summary of his character? I'll take you back to this again. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That is a good definition of his character. Those nine quality traits. Those nine character traits. Now, what does he mean when he says in verse 5 that my sinful passions were aroused by the law? What does he mean by that? We've learned this already in the previous sections. The law, one of the purposes of the law is the law thoroughly defines sin. The Ten Commandments is a good summary of that. But he says that once I learn all of the details and all of the aspects of sin, 
it increased my desire to sin. Do you understand that? When you are raising your children, your children probably never even thought about this, but you say to them, Jonathan, I do not want you to touch mommy's oven when she has it on. That's a law. That's a rule of our household. Mommy turns the oven on and leaves the room. What now will Jonathan, my son, when he was five, have a tendency to do? Go to that oven and touch it. Before the rule, he didn't even know that was a rule. He didn't even think about it. He never even considered it. Now I gave him the rule. What does he do? He starts to consider it. Think about it. Jonathan, we're going to put the cookies up on the third shelf. You cannot get those. Do not get a cookie on the third shelf. We're up there so that you can only have one cookie a day. Now that he knows that's a standard, what's he going to do? Mommy leaves the room. He gets a chair. He stands up. Why? Because the law arouses your passion for sin. Now I used a silly example of my son when he was little. But that's the reality of human life. You start setting boundaries, what do people start doing? Pushing the boundaries. This is what Paul is saying. The tragic irony of the law is once God defined the specificity of sin, it aroused our desire to sin more. And honestly, as I've studied this and thought about this, and you know, I really understand what he's saying. Because any time a standard is sent, people start pushing the boundary of that standard. How far can I go? Can I cross over that boundary and nobody sees it? You know, you know what I mean? Seven over is okay. What's that? Seven over. <laughs> Seven over. Okay. But you follow, you see, see what he's saying in verse 5. It's a powerful, it's a powerful insight into human, the human condition. But you come to faith in Christ. You're dead to the law. Look at the rest of that verse. But now, is verse 6, but now the change has occurred. We put our faith in Christ. We're now participants of the new covenant. Now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So we now serve a new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Again, that's the language of new covenant, Versus the old covenant. We now participate in the new covenant. We serve the Lord in a new way according to the Spirit. And that's going to be the theme of chapter 8. This is, this is a walk-on, a preview, a foretaste of what's coming in chapter 8. It's walking by the Spirit. But he's making it, it's just, oh my goodness, it's so powerful. And, and what, what a marvelous insight into the challenge of talking to a Jewish person about the law, especially an Orthodox Jew, because for the Orthodox Jew, the law is life. The law is the most important thing to them. Keeping the Sabbath and observing the Sabbath and following all of the strictures of the Sabbath is the most important thing in their life. Following the kosher food laws, that's absolutely, absolutely central to their daily life. That's how they prepare their meals. They go to special stores because it's the law. 
Come to Christ and you're freed from the law. 3,500 years of my tradition? What do you mean I'm freed from that? Because you've now died to the law. Its purpose is over. Its purpose has been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled it. No, he didn't. I'm still obligated. It's my identity. No, it's not. You see, you're speaking, you're speaking a language that is so difficult for the Jewish person to embrace. And then you get into this, you know, the ironic result of the law is it actually arouses you to sin more. <laughs> you know, this is why what Paul is saying still in 2022 is foreign, especially to the Orthodox Jewish person. It's absolutely true. So I've got five minutes, but um, for these six verses, are you with me? Is there any any guys online? Are you with me on this? Yep. Yeah, but uh, we got time to hit that seventh one. The seventh one, you mean verse seven? Yes. Okay, if we have time, would he give me authority and the obligation and the duty to go on? So I'm going to do it. Verse seven, we're not going to get this done. But Paul wants to elaborate now on the relationship between the law and sin. He's, in effect, going to pose this question. If what you just said is true, then the law is evil, right? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Now, that's a very appropriate question, isn't it? Based on what he just said in the previous six verses. That's a very appropriate question. The law is sin, right? Amen. No, the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language, by no means. Let me explain what I mean, Paul says. The law revealed what sin is, and that's very dangerous knowledge. If I had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, when he says that, now you have to, you have to, okay, I understand what you just said, Paul. Now, let, let me probe the depths of that sentence. I would not have known sin. Sin defined, excuse me, the law defined the holy character of God. It defines what our creator, let me rephrase that, how our creator wants us to live. But if I choose not to follow that moral law, that's rebellion. If I choose not to follow what my creator has revealed about the best way for me to live my life as an image bearer of him, then I choose to defy that, that's rebellion. Sin now takes on the character of rebellion. Sin is always there. It's innate. It's on our heart. That's what conscience is, Romans uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. It, it, it's always there. But once the moral law of God is revealed, which is his character revealed, then to willfully and defiantly go against that is rebellion. So sin takes on an even deeper meaning. It's now defiant rebellion against the holy God, because now I know what his character is. Then Paul uses the illustration and it's, 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 it's a very personal illustration. It's interesting he chooses the 10th commandment. 
Well, I, I'm going to start this, but I, I, I don't know if we'll get finished. <laughs> but I'm going to start it nonetheless. Maybe I'll just go back over it next week. So he illustrates, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Let's think about what he's saying in, in the couple of minutes we have here. Is he saying that before God in 1446 B.C. at Mount Sinai said, do not covet, do not covet your neighbor's wives, your neighbor's cows, your neighbor's land, does that mean that before 1446 nobody coveted? Is that what that means? No, that's not what it means. It was always there. That's what he says, before the law, sin lies dead. It was latent. It was there. I still coveted. But now God has revealed this is one of his moral laws, one of his characters, one of his obligations for me as his image bearer. I now know that's defiance against God. So did I then stop coveting? No. But now it's been defined for me. I have the clarity of the moral character of God. The law gave me this information. And it caused me to even sin more as a rebellious act against God. Just because he said I shouldn't do it didn't mean I stopped doing it. It's now it's defined for me as his moral character. So now sin takes on an even more serious step, defiant rebellion against God. And the sinful nature of humanity delights in violating, in breaking, in defying the moral law of God. Give someone a rule and they desire to violate it. And we just illustrate it. This is what government does. Government says... Here are the boundaries for living in the city of Omaha. And so the mayor, Stothard, and the city council issue a series of ordinances and to deal with a particular moral problem. And all of a sudden, everyone in Omaha stops doing it, right? Just because they issued the law. No. But now it's open, defiant rebellion because you now have a clarity of the boundary. And the human condition is the more the more rules you give, the more it focuses on the human condition of people. I'm gonna push that boundary. I'm gonna see what I can get away with. I'm gonna see idea if I can do it with impunity. Now, those sentences I just said, you understand? That's what Paul's getting at. When God issued his moral law in 1446 B.C. at Mount Sinai, it didn't mean the human race all of a sudden stopped doing all these things. Because they were still there. But now they're defined by God. The clarity and specificity of God's moral law is there. And now sin takes on even a more deeper and dark context. It's defiant rebellion against God. That's true in Adam and Eve. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. There was one rule, and they, they couldn't even keep that one rule. Okay, you're starting to get it. This is really good, but i got to quit. All right? Woody, how are you doing with your knees? Uh, I've got it I've got arranged. I'm going to start 
therapy and a treatment of injections uh, from the 23rd this month, and uh, it's going to last okay. four weeks. All right. Well, I'm going to pray for you, okay? Yeah, thank you so much. Father, thank you for these incredibly important passages in the book of Romans. I believe Romans 6, 7, and 8, practically speaking, practical elements of our faith, are some of the most important chapters in the Bible. It really helps us to understand, I believe, helps us to understand what our position is. We're dead to sin. We're dead to the law, but the struggle is still there. Paul is really helping us to understand the nature of that struggle. But as he's going to conclude, and we already see it, the power of the gospel, the power of being identified with Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit enables us to break this cycle. So we're now slaves to righteousness, slaves to Christ, slaves to the moral law of God revealed because we have the Holy Spirit. And that's where he's working in this tremendous chapter, chapter 8. So I hope what we've covered today, practically speaking, is very important to these men, both here in the room and online. So I commit them to help them to process and think about and meditate on these passages, to think, this is who I am in Christ. And I pray for Woody. Um, Leave be with him in these weeks to come, especially as he starts therapy a little bit later on. And may that uh, completely, uh, completely help him to get uh, the full use of his knees restored, help him to be patient, help him to do what the therapist says, and just uh, commit him to you. And any other special needs in the men here in the group, uh, we, we know each one of them has special needs, so we trust each one to you as well. Our goal, Lord, is to be your ambassadors, to be your salt, your light, to represent you well. As we walk in faith with you, to be all you want us to be, to the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. See you next week, guys.